Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles this morning and go with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter number 11 this morning, the book of Mark and chapter 11, as we continue through our study, walking right through the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11 this morning. And thank you so much for being with us, Mark 11. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us as we just walk right through the Gospel of Mark. Mark 11 this morning is where you'll find your place. And we're going to pick up reading in verse number 20 of Mark 11. If you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word? Mark 11, verse number 20. We're going to go right down to verse number 26. Mark 11, verse 20 to verse 26. The Bible reads, And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him. So he says to Jesus, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye shall receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive. For if any have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye forgive not, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. Mountains in the Bible are used in a number of different ways. Sometimes when the Bible is speaking about mountains, it is speaking about a a physical mountain, like Big Bear Mountains. It's an actual physical place that they would walk up to, a place that they would camp, a place that they would build a sacrifice or or, or an altar. Sometimes when the Bible is speaking about mountains, it's, it's speaking about a kingdom. In fact, the kingdom of God, the Bible speaks of it as a mountain. Now, sometimes it can be a physical place. Sometimes it can be referring to a kingdom or a rule. And sometimes in the Bible, when it's speaking about mountains, it's speaking about an impossible situation, a difficulty, something that is so large, so big, so, so complex that it is like a mountain. It's too big for you, it's too much, it's too difficult, the path is too narrow. What do you do when you face an impossible situation? And that is what Jesus is talking about in verse number 23 of our text. He's he's using hyperbole and he's speaking about an impossible situation. 
And he is encouraging the disciples that when you face difficulty, when you face impossibility, when you face something that's way too big for you to be able to navigate, it will require faith. He's speaking of the necessity of faith. He knows that the disciples are going to face a difficulty from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. As the disciples are going to try to carry out the mission that Jesus is giving to them, they will face some impossible situations. And so they will need faith. In fact, you'll remember, context here matters. You remember what's happening. This is the final week of Jesus' life. Just a few days from the reading of this passage right here, Jesus will have a trial. Jesus will be scourged. He'll be flogged. Jesus will be rejected by the masses. Jesus will be nailed to the cross. He will die there on the cross. They will take his body down. They'll lay him in a grave. And three days from that moment, Jesus will resurrect from the grave. This is what separates Jesus from everyone else is that when Jesus died, he rose from the dead. And so Jesus is telling his disciples this. He is saying, this is the path that God has for me. This is the way in which I am walking. This is the purpose from which I am coming. But you have a purpose and a path as well. And just like I am facing difficulty on my road, you will face difficulty on your road. So you will need much faith. You will need, notice the verse, 22, have faith in God. Jesus has cursed the fig tree. This was a few days ago now. Jesus cursed the fig tree and the Bible is saying that the fig tree withered away and died. Yesterday, Jesus pronounces a curse on the fig tree. The disciples and Jesus walk right by that same fig tree today. And the Bible is highlighting this, that it is withered, it's dried. Look at verse 20. It's dried up from the roots. It's dried up at its core. Now you'll remember, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Jesus, the Bible teaches us, cursed the fig tree because the fig tree professed something it did not possess. It looked as if on the outside there would be fruit, but when Jesus got up to the tree, there was no fruit at all. And so Jesus curses the fig tree, and it's not just that the fig tree withered and died, it's that it, it super withered and died. It died all the way to the root, and it did so by the next day. And now they're walking back by the fig tree. Now you need to remember this. That between the cursing of the fig tree and this event that we just read, something else happened. And what happened was Jesus walked into the temple. And when Jesus walked into the temple, he saw this external show of religiousness. 
He saw the religious elites buying and selling, having high interest rates and exchange rates for worship. They had contaminated the worship of God. They were calloused in their hearts toward the things of God. They were careless about the people who were coming there to worship God. And Jesus looked at that and Jesus says, this is just like the fig tree. It puts a really good show on the outside, but it has nothing on the inside there's a show but there is no substance and so what does Jesus do it may surprise you to know this but Jesus gets angry and he flips over the tables and he drives out the money exchangers and the Bible says he fashions a whip and he leads them out and Mark teaches us he suffers no man to even carry a box through the temple you imagine somebody this morning in the lobby just smacking boxes of donuts out of people's hands, right? We'd say, that guy has lost it. And Jesus is doing this, why? Because they had contaminated the worship of God. They had exchanged real worship of God for an external show of religiousness. And now they're walking back out and they see this fig tree. It's withered all the way to the root. And Peter is saying in his head, he is remembering, wow, you cursed this fig tree yesterday. And now today, it is dried up all the way to its root. How could this happen so fast? And the answer that Jesus is giving them is this. Because of faith in God. Because of faith in God. And Jesus is showing them two things about a real relationship with God. That real evidential relationship with God is not simply known in external things of religion. Sometimes we think, well, I have a relationship with God, I go to church. Well, I have a relationship with God, I help feed the hungry. I have a relationship with God, I help clothe the needy. I have a relationship with God, I'm kind to my neighbor. And all of those things are good, and we ought to do all of those things. But these are not evidences of faith, these are not evidences of a relationship with God. Jesus is saying the evidence of relationship with God is known in two ways. It is known first by your faith in God. And second, it is known by your forgiveness to others. You want to see the fruit of religion? The fruit of religion is faith in God and forgiveness to others. It is, it's not, your, not, not, not all of these things of morality or civility or religiosity. The, the, the evidences of religion, the evidences of relationship with God, the evidences of a knowledge of God is understood in your faith in God and is understood in second, your forgiveness to others. Let's look at these two things. Notice first the issue of faith. And Jesus says this in verse number 22. Jesus answers, says unto them, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. He's saying, I want you to understand how we got to this point. I want you to see how this fig tree was transformed in the matter of a day. It is because faith was placed in the right person. You see, you, you can have a lot of faith, but if you place 
all of that faith in the wrong place, it will go nowhere. You can have a little faith. And if you have a little faith in the right person, it will go a long way. You can have a lot of faith in the wrong person, it goes nowhere. You have a little faith in the right person, and it will go a long way. And Jesus is saying, put your faith in the right place. Where should we put our faith? And then he answers, notice the verse. He's saying, you should put your faith in God. Not, not, not in the church, in God. Not in politicians, in God. Not in an economy, in God. Not in riches, but in God. Not in good works, but in God. Put your faith in God. So to put your faith in God means that you are living your life as an acknowledgement of God's existence. That he is God. He is real. He is there. He has power. He has plan. He, he has a purpose for your life. He has a direction in which he is leading you. And he is doing a thousand things every day to lead you in the direction that he has for you. You see, the issue of faith is always the object of your faith. It is not faith in yourself. It is not faith in faith. But it is faith in God. Could you articulate your faith in God? Would you be able to say, well, I believe in God. Well, who is he then? Well, I believe in God, the Father. The creator of heaven and the earth, the sustainer of all life. I believe in his only son, Jesus. I believe in his Holy Spirit. Would you be able to articulate that by way of faith in God? Your, your faith must be placed in the right person. And the person is God. And so so how, do we, how do we give faith? If we're supposed to put our faith in the right person, and we're supposed to put that faith in God, well, how do we get faith? Well, if you stop by the bookstore this afternoon for $19.99, you can pick up a cup of faith. No, that's not how it goes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if it were that simple? You just stop by the Christian bookstore. You can just buy yourself some faith, all that you need for the week, and just carry it with you. And whenever you're just feeling down or discouraged or having a difficulty, you just take out your bottle of faith. That doesn't work this way. So what is faith in God? How do we have faith in God? Let me answer it for you in three ways. To have faith in God means to focus on the promises of God. To have faith in God means to focus on the promises of God. But where do we find the promises of God? You find the promises of God in the word of God. The Bible is teaching us that God has bound himself to his word. Listen to it in Hebrews chapter number 6. Wherein God... Willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. That God has bound himself to a word, his word. And God is willing to show himself that he is unchanging. That he is who he said he is. That he will do what he said he would do. And he did so by binding himself to his word. He confirmed it, the author of Hebrews is saying, he confirmed it in an oath. In other words, what the scripture says, God says. What the Bible says, 
God says. What the scripture promises, God promises. The promises of the scriptures are to be the fuel of our faith in God. The promises of the Bible are to be the fuel of our faith that we are to read God's word. We are to study God's word. We are to meditate on God's word. We're to gather with God's people and we're to open the word of God and we're to look at the promises and it encourages, it stirs, it moves our faith in God. This is what he's saying. Have faith in God. Have faith in in God, be focused on the promises of God. Now, there, there is a lot of confusion about this passage in our world today. There, there are movements of, of churches and religions that, that, that take promises like this in the Bible and they say, well, look what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that if you just believe it and you just name it, then it, can, will, then it will become yours. As if we could just walk out to the curb today and say, Lexus, you are mine, and it'll just poof, it'll be there. Is this what Jesus is promising? Is Jesus saying to the disciples as they're standing there on that mountain, as they're looking out over the sea, as they're looking out onto the Mediterranean, is Jesus saying to them in their understanding, all you have to say is mountain, get up and walk out there, and it'll just jump into the sea, just name it and claim it, and it becomes yours? Is this what Jesus is articulating? Would you try that when, you, when you're trying to make your way uh, 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 across the state? Whenever you get out to the Big Bear Mountains, just look out the snow-capped mountains this afternoon and say, mountain, move, and see how it goes. Your family will be calling uh, the police and the authorities on you if you try that kind of stuff. This is what he's saying. What is, he, what, is he, what is he saying? Have faith in God if in these kind of difficulties they will be possible for us. Things that we thought were otherwise impossible, they will become possible to us. Why? Because we are claiming the promises of God's word. That's why. Let me illustrate it like this. Have you ever, you ever heard of something called binding precedent? So it's a, it's a legal term. It's where a legal decision was made in the past. A, a court, a judge ruled in a particular way. And then you use that past court decision for your similar case in the present. So if you have a, if you have a really good lawyer, he, he, will, he will regularly refer to binding precedent. He'll, he'll search the law and he'll find some case that is favorable in your situation, and he will use that case, he will argue that case in the sight of the jury and the judge in order to attempt to get a verdict that is favorable for you. It's binding precedent. And this is what Jesus is helping us understand. That there is a binding precedent for God. And what is the binding precedent? Not your will, not your whim, not your idea. No, the binding precedent for God is the word of God. That all throughout the Bible, we see God working in impossible situations for men and women. And he is fulfilling his promises for them. 
We, we can talk all day about the ways in which God has worked in impossible situations. Do you remember Daniel and the lion's den? Do you remember Jonah and the whale? Do you remember the Hebrew children starving in the wilderness and it begins to rain down food? You see, Jesus is saying, have faith in God. Okay, I want faith in God. How do I increase my faith? How do I get faith in God? Well, we learn, we focus on the promises of God. We study the word of God and we allow the word of God to become binding precedent in our hearts and in our lives as we make decisions in the present. So all of the stories in this book, all of the history, the prophecies, the poems, the wisdom writings, the sermons, the statistics, the letters, all of it, all of it should be received as from God. And as Christians, we should be thankful for the word of God because it is showing us the way in which God intends to work. So hear me, friend, when you are facing a mountain, you can, if you so choose, to focus on your problems or you can focus on the promises of God. You can choose to look at how difficult this situation is and how impossible it is to overcome. Or you can say, no, 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 I'm going to choose to focus on the promises of God and allow the word of God to lead and guide me in my life today. So how do we have faith in God? We have faith in God by focusing on the promises of God. Second, we have faith in God by being confident in the power of God. Notice what he says in verse number, verse number 23. That whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye shall receive them, and ye shall have them. So Jesus is teaching us that he wants you and I to have such a confidence in God that, that we are prepared to ask God for the things that seem impossible. You ever, you ever heard the saying, you cannot outgive God? You ever, heard, you ever heard somebody say that before? You cannot outgive God? Let me tell you what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not only teaching us that you cannot outgive God, but Jesus teaches us this lesson. You cannot out-ask God. You cannot out-ask God. Because he's God. There is nothing outside of his scope. There is nothing outside of his reach. There is nothing outside of his resources. He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He is everywhere, the Bible is teaching us. There is nothing outside of the scope or the resources of God. Because God is all of these things. And so there is no way in which you and I can out-ask for or ask, ask for things from him. In fact, the way in which we ask things from God indicates what we believe about God. Do you believe God to be good? Do you believe God to be generous? Do you believe God to be kind? Do you, do you believe God to have infinite wealth? Do you, believe, do you believe God not to be bound by the currencies and economy of men? Do, do you believe God to be in control of, of all the things in our life? Do you believe God to be wise as it relates to your health? Do you believe God to be wise as it relates to your body? You see, what we ask of God indicates something that we think about him. As I, I've used this illustration before, I'll use it again. 
I'll take my kids to the store. I'll say to my kids, hey, anything you want in the store, you can have it. Merry Christmas. Anything you want, it's yours. Wow. Dad, you're amazing. You're so kind and generous. Can I have this pack of bubblegum? Say, sure, you can have a pack of bubblegum if you want. You think I'm only good for 78 cents? No, no, no. You, you, if you think dad to be kind and generous and good for his word, what would you do in the store? And you'd go buy the biggest thing that your heart desired. You go, dad, wow, well, can I have this Nerf ultimate gun with a thousand rounds of bullets, right? You can have that. You see, what you, what you ask from God indicates what you think of God. Do you, do you think him to be kind and generous and good and loving? Or do, you, or do you see God to be stingy and grumpy and cantankerous and bothered by the fact that you and I would come to him with a need again? And Jesus is saying, no, this is not how God is. No, this is not the way in which God operates. This is not the way in which God thinks of us. God encourages us, ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. It's this confidence, not in ourselves, but it's a confidence in God. And instead of having this confident faith in God, you know what we have? We have a circumstantial faith in God. That we feel toward God as, as if he will only do certain things at certain times. If, you're, if your faith is a circumstantial faith in God, it's not a confident faith in God. Then, then you are only leaning to your own experiences, your own success, your own situation, your, your own circumstances to interpret what you think about God. Instead of allowing God to define who he is for himself in his word, you're looking at your life circumstances and you're going, well, God must be like this because this is what I'm experiencing. Or God must be like that because this is what I'm going through. Or God must be angry at me because these are the hard times that I'm falling upon. And the problem with that is that there is no consistency in this life. As soon as you think you have life figured out, guess what? Boom, something else comes your way. Just about the time you think you've got it figured out. It's something else. Circumstantial faith isn't a good way to understand God either because we are not good at interpreting situations. We are limited in our knowledge. We cannot see all, know all. We do not know beginning from the end, but God does. God is not limited to space and time. God sees past and beyond it all. In fact, let me illustrate it like this. There are times where if you asked my kids, hey, does, does your dad love you? They'd go, no way. My dad doesn't love me. He hates me. You go, well, why? Why does your dad hate you? Well, because he's making me go to the dentist. That's why. And I hate the dentist. And my dad is making me go there. And so my dad doesn't love me. But is that true? No, in fact, you might, if you had any wisdom about yourself, you might understand that by me making them go to the dentist, I actually do love them. And I want their teeth to rot out and fall out of their heads. You see, they're just kids. And they have, a, they have a hard time interpreting the events of their life. They cannot know all I know. They cannot see all that I see. And so it is, but infinitely more with God and you and me. 
You cannot see all that God sees. You cannot know all that God knows. And so if you are having a circumstantial faith, you are looking around at your life and you're going, wow, God must be really upset with me. God must not love me. God must not care for me. God must be, up, God, God must be angry at me because look what I'm going through. No, 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 no. The Bible is teaching us over and over again. You want to know the love of God? You want to see the love of God? You can see and understand the love of God by looking at the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Herein is love. God loved you when you and I were sinners. God loved us when we were running from him. We made an enemy of God. We went our own way, chose our own path, did our own thing. And yet God chose in his own good will from eternity past to set his love on us by sending his son the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place now God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us while we were sinning Christ was dying and Christ was doing this for us God was doing this for you God was saying to you in the death of his son the Lord Jesus this is my love for you do you see how much I love you and that I am giving you my son is confident how do we increase in faith confident in the power of God how do we increase our faith? And focus on the promises of God. Be confident in the power of God. Third, be consistent in the plan of God. So watch what he says. Look at verse number 23. He says, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Shall not doubt, but believe. So faith acknowledges the promises of God. Faith recognizes the power of God. But faith also recognizes that belief is a battle. It's a war. You remember the man in the Bible who says to Jesus, Lord, his son is sick. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Where is he finding himself? He's finding himself in this place, a place of doubt. Jesus says, and shall not doubt in his heart. You read the book of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about something very similar. He says that we should ask without doubt. Without doubt. Now you need to understand something about this. So thou shalt not doubt, or without doubt. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt is the state of mind which is suspended between faith and unbelief. Doubting is what James calls being double-minded. You, you are not sure if you don't believe... But you are not sure if you do believe. You, you are not certain that God will, but, but you are not confident that God won't. You find yourself divided. You find yourself in the middle. It's being double-minded, or in this case, it's having a divided heart. Divided between belief and disbelief. To believe something 
is to be certain. It is to accept it as true. To disbelieve is to be, is to be certain, certain something isn't. It is, to, it is to reject it. And so what is doubt? Doubt is when you are being pulled between the two. Doubt is like what James says, the ship on the wave that's being tossed this way and that way with every kind of wind, with every kind of thought, with every kind of philosophy. So Jesus is saying that if you want to have faith in God, and if you want to walk in that faith in the midst of your difficulty, you must be consistent in the plan of God. You must recognize that Faith is a struggle. It's a battle that you are being constantly in this world pulled one way or the other. There's a very famous story about Hernan Cortez. I think I've told this story here before. You've probably heard it. He was the Spanish conquistador that landed in Mexico in the early 1500s. He proceeded to to topple the mighty Aztec empire with this little small band of soldiers and sailors. But as the, as the story goes, when they arrived on the island, they, uh, his, Cortez's men were, were restless. They were afraid. They heard of the awful ways in which the uh, Aztecs had treated their enemies. And so they weren't fully committed. And so Cortez, not, not wanting his men to be in doubt, he decided to take away any temptation or ability for them to flee, and he made the decision to dismantle his own ships. He ran them aground, he took all the things off of them, and they sunk to the bottom of the ocean. The message Cortez was giving his men was very clear. There's no going back now. There's nowhere to run. We are where we are. And we are here in the middle of this hostile wilderness. So you might as well decide you are going to fight because you do not have a choice. Cortez and his men were totally outnumbered. Outnumbered by a violent hostile enemy. An enemy which preferred, read the books, they, they preferred to capture you. Take you to their temple and cut out your heart while you were still alive. Rather than to kill you in the midst of the battlefield. Cortez had put himself in this position intentionally. He would either have victory or he would have his heart cut out. There would be no third option. You see, Jesus is saying there is no third option. Have faith in God. So because faith is crucial, doubt is serious... There are times in our lives where we doubt. This is true. There are times, there are seasons that we go through when we struggle to understand just exactly what God is up to. Why, why did I get diagnosed with this? Why did my family go through that? Why, why am I facing this situation? There are times where we doubt that's true, but what should we do with our doubt? We should dismantle them. We should run them aground. We should destroy them. By doing, by doing what? By taking them to the promises of God. By reminding ourselves of the purposes and the power of God. 
by entrenching ourselves in the plan of God. That God will be faithful, come what may. God will be faithful, come what may. We cannot allow ourselves to be double-minded. The person who cannot choose between trusting God or trusting someone or something else is a person who in the end will be destroyed. If you want to end your double-mindedness, it's very easy. But it is not simple, but it is easy. You have to, you have to learn to think differently. You have to learn to think in a way that reinforces, reinforces your faith. Focus on God. This is what Jesus is saying. Focus on the promises of God. Focus on the power of God. Focus on the plan of God. Yield to God. Have faith in God. And faith is not just a vertical acknowledgement of God, though. Faith also calls us to live in a particular way horizontally. So notice what he says. The text reads like this. Verse number 25. And when ye stand praying, forgive. In other words, it is impossible for your faith to simply be a vertical exercise Faith is not something that you just think. Faith is also something that you do. Faith is not something that you just say. It is not something that you just mouth. It is not something that you just pray. Faith is something that you live with your life. And so Jesus makes the connection in this way. The connection is this. Have faith in God. But offer forgiveness to others. Do not allow your faith to simply be a vertical exercise, but also allow your faith to be lived out horizontally in this life. So if you are seeking forgiveness from God, but you live with unforgiveness towards your neighbor, then you show yourself to be inconsistent in your faith. So if you truly want to have faith, if you want your faith to grow, if you want your faith to be built up, stored up, then we must forgive those who have wronged us. You should pray for those who have wronged you. It, it may not change them, but it'll change you. And that is what God is after anyway. An unforgiving spirit, did you know this? An unforgiving spirit can hinder your spiritual life. In fact, the Bible teaches that there are three things that hinder your spiritual growth. Anger, immorality, unforgiveness. These three things, the Bible explicitly states, hinder your pursuit of God. They stifle your spiritual growth. Anger, immorality, and unforgiving spirit. Sometimes people will say to me, they'll say, well, pastor, I just, you know, I don't come to church anymore because I don't get anything out of the services. Well, it might be true. I might be getting worse as a pastor and communicating God's word. I'm, I, I, I have some self-awareness. I'll recognize that. 
But I will tell you this. If you come to church and you get nothing out of it, you better check three things. You better check your anger. You better check your immorality, your purity, your thought life. And you better check if you're harboring bitterness in your heart towards someone else. Because God is saying these are the three things that will kill you spiritually. They will destroy you. This is what Jesus says. You see what I did to that fig tree? It's all about a question of fruit. It's all about a question of fruit. Do you see what I did to that fig tree? Check your life for fruit. What, what I am saying to you about bold, audacious faith in God, check your life for that. What I'm saying to you about wrestling between unbelief and belief, check your heart for that. What I am saying to you about forgiveness and a forgiving spirit, harboring bitterness towards someone, you better check your life for that. This is a this is a warning passage to the disciples. Of course you're going to face mountains. Of course you're going to have difficulty. Of course there are going to be things that are impossible for you. So check your heart with the issue of faith and the issue of forgiveness because you will not be able to navigate the situation and the situations of this life without these two things. Faith in God, forgiveness to others.